On one occasion, the Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's PA, his personal attendant and younger cousin, asked the Buddha whether the fundamental instructions that had been given by previous Buddhas, there's this concept in the Buddhist uh, worldview, the Buddhist cosmology, that there are periodically Buddhas that come into the world. So Ananda had asked the Buddha whether the fundamental instructions given, given by previous Buddhas were the same as those that the present Buddha was giving. To which the Buddha answered, to refrain from harm, to perform wholesome actions, and to purify the mind. This is the teaching of all Buddhas, which is very often heard as kind of a succinct summary of the Dharma. The whole Dharma is captured in that pithy saying. Sometimes we say, uh, to do good, to refrain from harm, and purify the mind. This is the teaching of all Buddhas. So this is a succinct summary of what the Buddha taught in all of those thousands of discourses, all of those lists, all the many texts that are available to us today. This is the essence of all of them, which is also a a summary of the Eightfold Path, which is the basic recipe, the, the roadmap for this path, for this practice. The Eightfold Path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, which Mark spoke about the first three of them the other night. So there's the truth of suffering, the truth of its cause, the truth of its end, and then the truth of the path, or the way, or the training that leads to its end. So this is the guidebook that the Buddha gave us, the instructions, the recipe for doing this practice. And, you know, for some of us, these teachings are very new. Some of us, we've been wading through a lot of teachings over many years or not so many years. Um, but if there's one teaching that we really kind of get want to get in there into the gray matter and internalize, this, this is probably it. Because this is our instructions. This is our set of instructions for walking the path. Uh, Bhante Gunaratana, the, the venerable Sri Lankan monk whose monastery, Bhavana Society, is a couple hours outside of Washington, D.C., um, which I visit sometime. Maybe some of you have been there or had the, the great um, good fortune to practice with him. He w- wrote a book called, uh, I think it's Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness, which is a, a wonderful guide to the Eightfold Path. Uh, years ago, uh, Annie and I did some teacher training along with some other uh, teachers who were just starting out here uh, at IMS at the time, and um, uh, Bhante G was not so gentle with us. <laughs> he grilled us on a lot of those lists that you have to learn, you know, to be able to teach, a lot of the traditional teachings. And um, at one point he asked me to list off the the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, <laughs> and I, at that point, did not have them in the memory banks, which was very motivating to learn them. Um, But one of the reasons that I hadn't really got them at that point is that the way that they're translated and presented, um, the way that I'd heard them at that point, um, was just not so meaningful. Like I hadn't actually done that inner work of translating, okay, what do those names, those poly names, and those kind of weird translations actually mean in practice? So I want to hopefully give a little bit of an understanding of those tonight. Um, in, in more practical terms. 
So the path factors, just to list them off, if you don't already have them committed to memory. (laughs) Uh, There's right view, samaditi, right intention, samasankapa, right speech, samavacha, right action, samakamanta, right livelihood, samajiva, right effort, samavayama, right mindfulness, samasati, and right concentration, sama samadhi. So, is everybody entirely clear on what, what those are? <laughs> uh, you know, it can sound a little daunting, but each of these and all of them together really are very practical um, guidance for how to live a full and a complete life as a spiritual being on this path. The, the, you know, the traditional translation for all of these, the sama and all of these is right, which is somewhat problematic to begin with. Um, appropriate might be a more, uh, a more appropriate word. <laughs> They're often translated these days in a more modern way, skillful or wise. So sama is this interesting modifier that has the sense of like useful or wholesome or good or it's a little hard to put your finger on. But it basically means the, the version of all these things, of livelihood, of speech, of mindfulness, concentration, the, the quality of each of those that is going to lead us towards less suffering. The Buddha was eminently practical. One of the things I really admire about him in all of his teachings, it was all about what is effective, what will actually work. So that's the sense of sama. This is what actually works. And the traditional... Yeah. The traditional representation for the Eightfold Path, which you may have seen in Buddhist iconography, we used to have, have it up here, but it's the wheel of the Dharma. So it's, it's not a linear representation. The, um, the, the icon, you know, the little um, the widget for the Eightfold Path, it's, it's a wheel with eight spokes. So uh, that's, I think, certainly deliberately a non-linear representation. Um, it's, it's circular. It circles round and round like a DNA helix, you know, and there's the spokes grow, go across the wheel, so all of the different factors are also connected to each other. So in this tradition that has a lot of kind of linear models and linear lists and things like that, really just as mnemonics from the days when this was an orally transmitted tradition, this very core teaching deliberately has a nonlinear image, nonlinear representation. I want to speak about the Eightfold Path, um, not going through each one individually so much, but as in a way that it's often presented um, these days in many of the modern traditions is the three trainings. So you can divide up those eight different pa- um, factors into three different kind of areas, areas of spiritual practice. So the first one is called Panya, um, which is usually translated as uh, the wisdom training. Um, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned my talk the other night, but I talked about panyati, which is the, the conceptual reality. So this is actually the training that has to do with working with concepts. So uh, this, is, this is very helpful to remember that there is a place for thinking in the practice. And it starts right here in the first training. The first training has to do with understanding. And at the beginning, just in a very ordinary way. You know, thinking about the teachings, hearing the teachings, understanding the teachings intellectually, um, and and putting them into practice. So under, not just understanding them as 
kind of abstract good ideas, but understanding them uh, as a framework for what we're doing in our spiritual life. The second training is uh, called the sila portion of the path. Sila usually translated as uh, virtue or conduct. It's the um, relational aspect of practice. So, you know, we come here and, you know, we really turn inward and just look inside of ourselves. It's a very individual enterprise, even though the support of the community is very important and all of that. But it's really looking deep inside ourselves. But there's this whole other piece of the path that has to do with being in the world, being in relationship, being in activity, how we get along, how we affect each other, what we do in the world, what we make of it. So this is another whole piece of the training, of the practice, practice in relationship. And then the the third training, the third of the three trainings is called the samadhi training usually, the training in concentration. Or these days we usually think of it as the meditative training. So this has to do with working on that uh, absolute level that I was speaking about, on the empirical level of getting in touch with this other dimension of our existence that we usually miss. Taking time out from what we're normally doing, how we're normally living, thinking, relating, to learn about this different aspect of our experience. So here, you know, this is a very specialized laboratory for working mostly, specifically on that aspect of the practice working on the samadhi portion of the practice. And this whole place is, is optimized for that, to really tune into that one piece of the pie. But we really need to remember that that is only one piece of the pie. It's one third of the pie, or I guess technically uh, three-eighths of the pie. <laughs> um, but there's another five-eighths of the pie. <laughs> it's not everything that's involved in the path. So... You know, our tendency at first, um, or maybe for a long time, <laughs> is to want to gobble down the whole pie and get everything at once. So it's important to remember that we come here and we do things in this very you know, odd, <laughs> artificial way that we do things uh, to work um, just on this one specific piece of the pie, to work on this one specific aspect of practice. And it's not that... It, we need a container like this to uh, do the whole practice. This place has been optimized, this practice, the way we do it here has been optimized to give us understanding and insight in particular ways. But there are many other ways in which we need to cultivate the path if we want it to really bear fruit, if we want it to really lead to less suffering in our own lives and in others' lives. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the panya training, the first portion of the Eightfold Path, the training in wisdom or understanding. So this is the one that has to do with our conceptual framework, how we think about what's going on here. We all may come in with different ways of thinking about what's going on in life based on what we've been taught, what we've read, what we've learned, what we've heard from other people, conversations we've had, all sorts of different places. You know, as I spoke about before, we, come up, we each come up with our own unique understanding of what's going on in the world. But the Buddha taught that not all concepts are created equal. <laughs> you know, so even though there's this relative realm, we may have different opinions and different viewpoints, and you know, for the most part, that's okay. 
Um, but there's certain concepts that are more helpful than others when it comes to spiritual life. So there are certain views, there are certain viewpoints, certain worldviews, certain philosophies that are in, more in alignment with the truth, more in, in better alignment with how things actually are. And because of that, they are more supportive for uh, learning to suffer less, for cultivating this practice. And then other views that are not so supportive, other views that can really be unhelpful in reducing suffering. So our understanding of kind of what's going on just in being alive and what's going on in this practice and our aspirations and what we might call in modern language our core values, how we think about what it is that we're trying to do, where we're trying to get, um, these ideas matter. They can either be supportive or they can be unsupportive. The Buddha lived during uh, this amazing time in, in our human history that we call the Axial Age, when there were all sorts of great teachers and thinkers emerging in the world. Um, civilization, human civilization was maturing. There were great uh, leaps and bounds in science and technology, philosophy, the arts. Um, there was a lot of questioning going on. It's like the human race was kind of discovering just how much potential it had sort of all at once in many different places. This was the time that the Buddha uh, emerged during. And in the particular area where the Buddha was in in northern India, around the Ganges Plain and the Himalayas, um, there were many, many spiritual seekers trying to figure out what it was all about, and many, many teachers who thought they had some clue what it was all about and wanted to share their messages. Um, people were coming up with all sorts of more or less wacky practices to try to purify the mind and eliminate suffering and you know, solve the human predicament. And uh, the Buddha gave a variety of teachings that have come down to us um, where he talks about ideas that were in, in common currency or just around the, the milieu where he was in his time. So just a couple of these um, on, on one end of the spectrum, uh, there were a certain number of teachers, uh, prophets, uh, saints going around uh, teaching that everything is predestined. It's all preordained. Either the gods have determined it all, how things are going to unfold, or it's all uh, up to some mechanism of fate, how everything is unfolding. So the, there were a certain number of people that had arrived at this belief that the universe is mechanistic. It's all unfolding due to, due to predetermined rules or predetermined uh, sequence of events. On the other end of the spectrum, there are a certain number of teachers, seekers, who had kind of come to the conclusion that everything happens at random, <laughs> that there's just no rhyme or reason to the universe. There's no guiding principles. Everything just kind of happens, eh, you know, who knows why. <laughs> it's all kind of a mystery. So in either of these cases, on either kind of end of the spectrum of thinking about how the universe is operating, either like totally controlled by some force beyond our power or totally uncontrolled by any force beyond anybody's power, um, in either case, those are scenarios where human beings have no meaningful agency, right? If everything's already been all laid out by some supreme power, by some immutable laws of the universe, then we're out of luck. <laughs> Same thing if it's all completely random, if it's just like 
firing, you know, just kind of by the roll of the dice constantly. Again, doesn't matter what we do. We have no role to play in that, no influence. So the Buddha was very clear uh, in his teachings. Uh, he found it important to spell out that these and a number of other kind of philosophies that were in circulation at the time were not either accurate or helpful. <laughs> you know, again, he was just so practical. So he taught that the truth is somewhere in the middle, you know, in, in the, the middle between these extremes. That yes, there is this huge momentum of causes and conditions that are you know, rolling the universe along in a certain direction, rolling our own individual lives, our bodies, our minds along in a certain direction. But we also have some ability to influence those causes and conditions and to, to put some input into, um, into the equation, to, to influence how things develop. So the Buddha taught that there's this middle ground where we don't have complete power on the one hand, but we're also not completely powerless on the other hand. And we don't have to accept this on faith. We can see it in our own experience. So, you know, if we, if we look, you know, what's our experience been during our week here so far? Uh, even if this is our very first retreat we've seen, this is, this is exactly our experience we see that there are so many conditions, there's so much programming, so much conditioning in the mind and in the body um, that gives rise to our experience beyond our present control. It's already in the circuitry. You know, that, that uh, song that we're listening to, that got in there sometime in the past, and now here it is. It's beyond our control at this point. And you know, there's you know, an uncountable number of those causes and conditions there. All the thoughts coming up, all the ways the, man, the body's manifesting, you know, everything that has happened to us uh, leading up to this point, you know, including everything since the Big Bang, you know, that's, that's brought these bodies and minds to be here in their current condition, is determining what's arising, what's being experienced. But we've also seen that we do have input, you know, we've seen how the quality of awareness that we bring to the experience can change the experience and it can shape the next moment so the next moment unfolds differently. The quality of heart that we bring, the quality of attention. So we also see that it's true, we do have influence. We can uh, put input into the system for the better or for the worse as well. So we don't have to take this teaching just on blind faith. We can really see it for ourselves. And the Buddha said that this is not only an accurate worldview, but a motivating worldview, right? Uh, there's a huge amount of causes and conditions that we have to contend with. And if we want to improve things, then we need to do something about it, or they'll just continue to roll along. Another fundamental uh, worldview for this practice, for taking up this practice, continuing this practice, is the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which Mark spoke about the other night. So the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, and the truth of the end of suffering. So if we think about it, we have to recognize the problem <laughs> before we can do anything about it. If we're in denial about the mess that our minds are in, um, again, there's no motivation. We can't see the problem, so we can't even do anything about it. If we think that the, the cause for our suffering is the will of the gods or fate or that it's just random, again, there's not much motivation to do, about, to do anything about it. 
And if we don't at least have a little bit of faith that it's possible to do something about it, it's possible to improve the situation, again, not much motivation to do anything about it. We might as well just try to grab hold of as much sense pleasure as possible because it's a lost cause. So again, this is a a worldview that's both accurate and practical, it's motivating. So just, just this, just this amount of understanding is, the Buddha said, is enough of a starting point for, for creating a conceptual framework that's supportive of practice. Uh, it's definitely possible to overthink these things. You know, some of us feel like we need to get you know, really complete, full, deep grasp on an intellectual level of the, all of the Buddha's teachings before we can really get down to the business of practicing or before we can really make any headway in our practice. And the Buddha was very clear over and over again that it's just not so. The, um, there's a, a classic story about the t- Buddha's two um, head disciples, his two right-hand men, who were the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Moggallana. And we often see them uh, in the Buddhist iconography, like the Buddha's this big figure in the middle, and then there's these little monk figures on either side of him, but the, the next biggest ones after the Buddha will be Sariputta and Moggallana. Um, Moggallana with a very dark complexion was said to be uh, foremost in psychic powers. And Sariputta with a very light complexion was said to be foremost in wisdom. And they were friends and had become spiritual seekers together, wandering around looking for you know, someone who had some answers, could teach them something. And at a certain point they encountered the Venerable Asaji, who had been one of the, the Buddha's first five students, one of the first arahants trained by the Buddha. And they met him and were really inspired and you know, picked up everything, left the teacher that they had been studying with and went and found the Buddha. And um, they ordained with the Buddha, joined his, his community. And Sariputta, uh, just for his practice, decided to stay in the area around a big city where the Buddha was teaching so that he could listen to the teachings. You know, he would go out every morning, go on alms round, get his breakfast, and then go sit and listen to the Buddha. And then in the afternoon, he would go someplace quiet and do his practice and think over the teachings a lot, you know, mull over what the Buddha had taught, like that. Um, whereas Moggallana, he kind of got the basic teachings from the Buddha and then left the city, went out to a secluded place out in the woods and sat down to do his practice uh, in in much greater seclusion, not really seeking out any more human contact than was necessary just to get his uh, little bit of food each day. So the, the, the teaching, the moral of the story here is that Moggallana attained full enlightenment in one week, but it took Sariputta two weeks. <laughs> so there's some of you there that need to take this to heart. <laughs> so, so more thinking is not necessarily more better. You know, there's a certain amount of thinking that's supportive, that's helpful on the path, and then a, past a certain point, it can become a distraction, quite honestly. The Buddha as well just um, refused point-blank to entertain certain... Uh, intellectual, theoretical questions, problems. Um, There's a set of four, what are called the imponderables, four topics he just refused to get into. And this happened actually many suttas. People come to him asking all sorts of kind of metaphysical, hypothetical, abstract questions, and he's just like, you know, uh uh-uh, let's talk about suffering and the end of suffering. (laughs) 
but the the four uh, kind of canonical imponderables are um, what it's like to be a Buddha is the first one. What is it actually like to be a Buddha? <laughs> he said, you know, you're just never going to figure it out, so don't try. Um, <laughs> also, another one is, is psychic powers. You know, if we haven't experienced them personally, not worth thinking about what are they like, what can they do, how can I get them, because it's just not going to make any sense. Um, another one is, is interestingly karma. You know, it makes sense if we think about it. It's just not possible to th- figure out the workings of karma. Um, some people can get kind of bogged down in this, like, am I having this horrible experience or has this terrible thing happened to me in my life? Am I sick? Am, you know, or is, is this or that or the other thing happening because of some horrible thing I did in the past, in a past life? He said, don't worry about it. <laughs> you can't figure out the, the web of karmic causes, you know, all of the bazillion conditions that have led to this present moment's experience is just too vast for anybody to make sense out of. And there's no point to it. It's just a distraction. And then the fourth one is um, what's called speculation about the cosmos. You know, so is the universe finite or is it infinite? You know, is it uh, it, uh, temporary or is it, you know, um, deathless? You know, all those, these kinds of questions about the nature of the universe. He said, eh doesn't matter. It doesn't matter and you can never find an answer. You will drive yourself crazy thinking about these things. So thought has a place to play in the practice, but we need to keep it in in perspective and use thinking in a skillful way to answer the questions that we have that, you know, really need to be clarified to do the work and then to be willing to set aside the things that are just not productive, not useful. The second portion of, of the wisdom training, the, the panya portion of the path, is what's called right intention, sama sankapa, um, which these days I think of it as um, more as like skillful aspiration or wholesome aspiration, uh, what's sometimes called setting ourselves in the right direction. And we've been practicing this week because the the, the wholesome aspirations that, that the Buddha encouraged us to cultivate are aspirations toward kindness, aspirations toward compassion, and the aspiration toward letting go, letting go of what's not really necessary for happiness. So this is the part of the path that involves realigning our core values, you know, shifting what it is that we're aiming towards, what it is that's driving us in life. On retreat, we have a chance to take a good, long, honest look at what's really motivating us. And pretty much all of you have been reporting on this, speaking about this, whether you realize it or not, in the, the discussion groups. You know, we, we get to see the craving for pleasure, how it drives us, the aversion to pain, the confusion. You know, it's, it's not easy, <laughs> it's not fun to really see honestly what it is that's really driving us moment to moment. You know, even in, in the things we consider most important in our lives, in our relationship, in our work. And when we look honestly, we see there's a whole lot of greed, hatred, and delusion, <laughs> for the most part, that's motivating us. Not, not always, but there's a lot of it. <laughs> so we can think, what would happen if that all stopped motivating me? You know, the, the thought of giving up craving can seem both 
nonsensical and frightening. Like if I don't want anything anymore, you know, will I just sit here and do nothing till I shrivel up and fall over? <laughs> you know? There has to be some reason for us to do what we do in the world. If it's not being motivated by wanting, by craving, or by aversion, or by confusion, then what is life about? You know, it's just speaking for myself, I know when I first heard this teaching and came up against this, this kind of rad- radical proposition that there was another way, it just made no sense to me. It's like, but, but <laughs> you know, that's what life is, you know, looking for the next pleasure, acting out the craving. Um, and one of my teachers at one point I was discussing this with, and, and he said, well, yeah, there's, you know, as the practice goes on, there become other reasons. There are other reasons that we start to do things for. And I was like, what? <laughs> what other reasons? <laughs> but it's just these things that the Buddha outlined in this, this teaching. The, you know, kindness becomes more the motivation. Compassion becomes more the motivation. Letting go becomes more the motivation. So, so it's not that we just lose motivation, but the, the motivations transform. You know, and the thinking mind has a role to play in this through the, the metta practice that we do. This is a, a conceptual practice that involves all that thinking, right? Generating the phrases, generating the, the good wishes, you know, reflecting on how the heart's responding. This is one of the formal practices that helps us to reframe, reorient what's driving us. Years ago, um, I interviewed Sylvia Borstein, a wonderful West Coast teacher based out of Spirit Rock community. And we were talking and we got on on this topic and she told me about a discussion she'd had once with somebody in her community who was a big, was a big social activist. Uh, And actually they came from a family of a lot of social activists. This was kind of their family culture. They were all involved in in big causes and trying to, to write injustice in the world. And this person had heard this teaching and came in for interview with her and said, uh, but I need my anger. I need my anger. My anger is what drives me in my work. If I'm not angry, I won't be effective. I won't be able to do anything. And she said that her response to that was, uh, it's not that you need your anger. It's that you need to know that you've gotten angry. Right? The anger is the, the blinking light, the red flag that goes up that says, something is wrong. <laughs> but then we don't necessarily need to act out of that anger. You know, the anger is, is what clues us in that there's a problem. But is that really where we want to be acting from then in whatever it is that we decide to do? This came up in one of the small groups as well that we can get into this practice and um, there can intellectually be the idea that, oh yeah, I want to be kinder. I want to be more compassionate. I want to live more lightly in the world, be able to let go more easily. Um, but when we look into the heart, that's not necessarily the truth in this moment for the heart. The mind tends to get there sooner than the heart. So there's this long process of, of really transforming, realigning, as we go along, little by little, where it is that we're coming from. You know, do we really believe that kindness is always the best policy? Or do we sometimes believe that righteous anger is the best policy? That's, that's something we each have to explore for ourselves. So the second training of the three trainings is the the relational piece, the sila training, which has to do with how are we interacting with others? How does what we do in the world influence others and influence our communities and our societies? 
And obviously this is a, a question that's very big right now for many of us in our society and especially in this community. Um, there have been many questions and comments around this topic in the hall and the small groups about how to put practice into action. And this very exploration is uh, in itself a big part of the practice. So this is uh, three-eighths of the practice, is the sila piece, the piece having to do with relationship. It's the, the do good and refrain from harm, perform wholesome actions, refrain from harmful actions, that part of the teaching that's, that's the teaching of all Buddhas. And if we look at the body of teachings as a whole, and actually if we look at how Buddhism is practiced in most traditional societies, most traditional Buddhist societies, this is the main portion, the main portion of the practice for most Buddhists, most people that would call themselves Buddhists. So the Buddha gave us a framework for thinking about this part of the path also, which we've been reciting every morning. It's called the five precepts. These are the guidelines that the Buddha gave us for how to practice uh, restraint, how to live skillfully in the world. Uh, he broke it down a little bit more. So um, the, there's a whole, one of the pieces of, one of the spokes of the wheel is just speech, skillful speech, right speech, which uh, we can divide down further into abstaining from lying. So just on the simplest le- level, being honest. Um, but then also refraining from divisive speech. So we may be saying something that's completely true, but it is going to wreak havoc. <laughs> this often happens. You know, we, we may find out something that's totally true, and did you hear that so-and-so did this and that, or did you hear that they said that about you? Totally true, totally divisive, <laughs> not, not conducive to harmony. Uh, also refraining from abusive speech. So again, we may be saying that something that's totally true in an extremely hurtful way, <laughs> you know, not so skillful. And then finally, refraining from idle chatter, sam papalapa, that's <laughs> the Pali word for this. <laughs> um, just as we look in the mind and we see there's a lot of chatter going on in there, not really useful, not really serving much of a purpose, same thing in what comes out through the mouth, <laughs> over the tongue, a lot of it just not useful, not helpful. Then we have the, the spoke of skillful action, which is um, the rest of the, the precepts. The Buddha thought that the one about speech was so valuable that he broke that one out separately. Then uh, the abstaining from killing, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct and uh, harmful intoxication, that all falls under skillful action. And then there's uh, this uh, issue of uh, skillful livelihood or wholesome livelihood which is thrown in there, which is, includes not just um, refraining from those five things covered by the five precepts, but refraining from facilitating them, which I find kind of interesting. So traditionally this is said to be um, through our livelihood, not uh, enabling <laughs> killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, intoxication. So uh, not dealing in weapons, not dealing in poison, not dealing in meat, um, human trafficking, illicit drugs, all of these things that um, contribute to unskillful behavior in the broader society, not being part of the cause for those things propagating and perpetuating. So that's the basic teaching on the, the practice of sila. 
Um, and actually, the, that's quite a low bar <laughs> you know, for a lot of us. Um, it's a low bar, but it's somewhat radical to think about. Like, you, like I sometimes think you could just pick any one of these things. Like just abstaining from killing. Let's just take one. <laughs> you know, what if like the bulk of humanity commit, really committed, not even to being perfect in that, but just doing their best? <laughs> it would be it's this amazing transformation. So sometimes we can look at these and we can reflect on our life, own life and think, well, yeah, no killing, that's kind of a no-brainer, no stealing, that's kind of a no-brainer, and just kind of be like, eh. You know, but if we really all took that to heart as a community, as a society, as a race, <laughs> that would be transformative. Of course, for many of us, um, our commitment to sila goes beyond you know, the, the bare minimum that the Buddha spoke about to... Um, the place of not just wanting to refrain from harm, but as the teaching says, to actually actively do good. And in all of those arenas, there's a lot of latitude to really good, to do good. So not just abstaining from killing, but really uh, protecting those that are in danger. Um, you know, doing work to prevent killing, to protect those that need protecting. And so on with the rest of those. So Sila, uh, my teacher Upandita, called this the conscious commitment to virtue. Conscious commitment to virtue, which, which captures a couple of aspects of it. That it's a commitment. You know, so it's not just drifting through life, not really causing too much harm, but not really thinking too much about it, but really committing, as we do every morning here in the hall, making that ongoing commitment, just as we do in a marriage or a long-term relationship. You know, here's another day where I commit to being as harmless as possible. Here's another day where I commit to doing as much good as possible. And doing that consciously. You know, the conscious part of it is important. It's doing it consciously that reinforces that tendency in the mind. Just as we've been seeing all of those tendencies, all of those ruts that get dug in the mind, the more consciously we approach how we are in the world, how we think about how we are in the world, the more that becomes a natural tendency, the more that really does become a true core value in the world. Our time spent here opening to our deeper aspirations and getting clearer about our priorities and our values is really part and parcel of this effort. We can't separate it out we may see for ourselves that we can only really open to as much suffering around us as we can open to in ourselves. You know, if we can't tolerate pain here in our own hearts and minds, we're not going to be able to tolerate it around us. If we turn away from it when it comes up here, we're going to be turning away from it when it comes up around us as well. There's no way to separate that openness of the heart. Openness of the heart touches ourselves the same as it touches others. It's said that the cause for the arising of compassion is seeing beings stuck in suffering, <laughs> helplessness in the face of suffering. This came up in one of the groups today. So the more we come to understand, see in our own hearts and minds how we get stuck in suffering, all the ways in which we're limited, all the ways in which we're constrained, all the ways in which we're stuck in our conditioning, in our un unwholesome patterns, our unhealthy tendencies, um, it's through seeing that that we really come to understand what each other is going through, what others around us are going through. And this is the true cause for the arising of suffering. It's hard work to learn to open to suffering. 
So that's why it's so valuable to come here and practice with this particular heart and mind. It's a very transferable skill. You know, we have to work with it here at home base in order to then take it out to the world. Maya Angelou says, I don't trust people who don't love themselves, but tell me I love you. There's an African saying which is, be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. (laughs) (laughs) So we work here with our own hearts. This is what we have to work with here, learning to open to suffering, to stay steady, to stay strong, stay more balanced in the face of suffering. And it's really delusion to think that that effort can happen in isolation, that we can just work with our own hearts and minds and it won't change how we are with others. (laughs) That's really delusion to think that it works that way. The quality of true love and compassion it said, is an inability to not respond to suffering. It becomes less tolerable to not respond to suffering. So being clear, being more aware, being more open, being more caring is not about being more of a doormat. (laughs) You know, as, as we've said, I think a number of times, it's not just about sitting back like, oh yeah, I'm so equanimous, it's all all right, I'm at peace with everything, you know. That is faux metta, (laughs) faux karuna. That's not the genuine article. When the heart really opens, then it's inevitable that we will be more responsive, especially if there's the conscious commitment, conscious commitment to engage in a skillful way. Uh, The Indian sage Meher Baba said, uh, true love is not for the faint-hearted. It's a courageous feeling. There's an image of uh, Kuan Yin that we see sometimes, you may have seen, uh, the thousand-armed Kuan Yin. There's a picture of it in the staff room here, which is uh, the Kuan Yin figure, which is this Buddhist, uh, from the Mahayana tradition, uh, goddess of compassion, goddess of true compassion. And in this image she's pictured, she's there either standing or sitting, and she's got a halo of arms around her, a thousand arms around her. Like there's so many of them, like they're just almost a blur. And they're holding all sorts of things. You know, this is the manifestation of compassion in the world. So she's holding you know, a lotus flower, she's holding a jewel, she's holding a medicine bottle, you know, things to help soothe the world. Um, but she's also holding like a spear and a club. <laughs> and uh, bows and arrows and all sorts of very nasty looking implements. You know, because part of that compassion is the fierceness. The fierceness is it goes out and takes up arms and, you know, goes to, goes to war, goes to battle, to fight the good fight, to cure what needs to be cured in the world. And sometimes that's with a very gentle approach and sometimes it's with a very fierce and very forceful approach. Whatever is called for the more responsive and open the heart is, the more we can see what it is that's called for. So the final training on the Eightfold Path is the Samadhi training. And I'll say just a little bit about this. So the Samadhi training includes those factors of Effort, skillful effort, skillful mindfulness, and skillful concentration is usually how those are translated. 
And the Buddha explained what he meant by those. I want to just summarize a little bit. So we might think of this, the samadhi portion of the path, the, uh, the inner work of the path, as having two facets. The first one we might think of as, as the mindfulness portion of that practice, which is to cultivate awareness of the body and the mind as fully as possible. So to recognize and become familiar with all of the things that go on within this human organism. The physical sensations, the thinking process, our emotional life, the the Vedana, pleasure, pain, awareness, all of that as completely as possible. And especially, you know, as we're doing that, to learn to tune into the wholesome and unwholesome qualities of mind. When is all of that there with wholesome quality of mind? When is it there with an unwholesome quality of the mind? When is there suffering and when is there not suffering? which we see a lot of here on retreat. This is a lot of what we're doing here. So this mindfulness uh, portion of the practice. But then there's another dimension to our meditative practice, which is the the insight dimension. And this is learning to tune into and and rest and, and follow along with the flow of empirical reality that I talked about the other night. So learning to settle into really rest, see moment by moment what is the uh, non-conceptual, the direct truth of the moment, what we know through our senses directly, so that insight can arise, so that we can see the deeper truths of what's going on here from within that space of empirical reality. That's why we emphasize that. That's why we're uh, moving towards that, so that we can see directly for ourselves the unsatisfactory nature of experience. You know, that wonderful sitting that we had this morning is now gone, and we would like to have another one, please, because it didn't satisfy us. You know, that wonderful uh, bagel that we had for breakfast was nice at the time, but it is now gone, and we'd like another bagel for breakfast tomorrow. (laughs) The unsatisfying nature of experience. And we can see the impermanence of experience. You know, not just in this conceptual way that, yeah, we all get old and we get sick and we die and things change around us, um, but that everything is changing moment by moment. Nothing is still, even for the briefest moment. You know, that thought that seems so solid at first when we look closely is constantly changing. It's not even one solid thought. That breath that seems so solid, same thing. If we look closer, it's not just one breath, but it's constantly changing flow of sensations that really all there is is impermanence, all there is is change, all there is is flow. And seeing the, the deeper truth of anatta, of emptiness or selflessness, that there really is no one in control, not in the way that we think there is, not in the way that we normally think there is on a conventional level, conceptual level, but that experiences are just flowing along, playing themselves out due to causes and conditions. So the more of this kind of insight that we get, seeing on a deeper level just how things are operating, and this part of it is not conceptual, this is a direct, deep, intuitive knowing, different way of knowing than from the Panya portion of the path, this insight level of knowing. The more we get things on on that level, that starts to really reprogram the deep conditioning of the mind so that it starts to shift how it's relating to reality. This is a a poem that pops up a lot uh, in the the Dharma world and in the self-help world in general. 
um, from Portia Nelson, but it's very apt. It's called There's a Hole in My Sidewalk, The Romance of (laughs) Self-Discovery. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes me a long time to get out. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I fall in. (laughs) It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk down another street. (laughs) This is such a great... (laughs) There's the eightfold path right there. (laughs) So we continue to work on both of these practices. We could think of the mindfulness practice as as kind of the first portion of uh, the hole in the sidewalk. You know, the mindfulness practice is what helps us to see the hole in the sidewalk and maybe we can get out of it faster, we can go around it. We keep working on that, and we keep working on the insight part of the practice, which is what allows us to just take another street, (laughs) go down a different avenue, and not go to the places in the ways that are difficult. So we continue to work on both of these in ordinary life. Through skillful effort, through mindfulness, through concentration, Um, it's not going to look like an ordinary life, what it looks like here. Here we're working in this very concentrated, uh, very intense way. This place is really a crucible for this kind of practice, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating insight. But that doesn't mean that the everyday practice doesn't count or is somehow second rate. So to the extent that we're able, we continue with our formal practice, cultivate as much concentration and mindfulness in that way as possible, And we also continue just in everyday practice, bringing in awareness, bringing in mindfulness, just as we go through the day in our ordinary activities. And because the path is uh, non-linear, the practice of the samadhi portion of the path, the meditative, the mindful awareness part of the path circles back around to the panya portion. So what we've seen in this deeper way through awareness, through insight, then comes to inform our conceptual understanding probably it'll shift it. Our our relative reality, our conceptual understanding is a constantly moving target. And we see this as we go through our practice. You know, at the beginning we may have thought we understood certain teachings, certain aspect of the teaching in a certain way, then we go on for a little while and come back to it and it's like, oh, that's not actually what I thought it was. (laughs) This practice for those of us that walk it for a long time is um, a process of being uh, repeatedly humbled. (laughs) repeatedly realizing that, oh, there's still more to learn. There's still more to realize. That's going to be a long time before we get all the answers. So if we approach the the practice, if we approach our spiritual path in this very goal-oriented, self-improvement kind of a way, you know, that there's this or that or the other that we want to fix about ourselves or fix about our relationships or or whatever kind of project or agenda we may have, um, we're going to be very dissatisfied because this is a long path. It's a long road. 
we can fall into thinking, okay, you know, I got to go get that book that they mentioned and that teaching that they talked about, and I gotta, I'm going to listen to like a talk on Dharma Seed every single night, and I'm going to memorize the Eightfold Path, you know, and all of that. And then I got to get to another, you know, I, I got to really get my act together. I'm going to take, I'm going to recite the five precepts every morning. I'm never going to tell another lie. I'm going to give up coffee. I'm never going to argue with my spouse again. <laughs> And on and on like that. And there's, I got to get to the three-month retreat next year. And then if I arrange things, I can get to, the, to the, 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 that retreat that's over there or there then. And I'm going to get in like two months of retreat time this year. And I'm going to do that for five years, you know, and whatever it is. Eventually, I'm going to work up to ordaining in Burma. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we can, we can relate to our practice that way if we want to. Nothing is stopping you but I strongly encourage you not to go down that route. <laughs> um, you know, there's so much advice over the years that, that, that I've received from my tre- teachers here, you know. Um, Joseph and Sharon and, and the other senior teachers here have been so generous with sharing all of the ways that they fell into the hole in the sidewalk in their practice in the, you know, the early years when this practice was coming over from Asia, and that's been tremendously helpful. Um, you know, in, in helping us and helping, uh, you know, those of us that are teaching now pass that information along and to, to make it more smoothly through our practice. So I'd like to pass this one, this one along to you based on personal experience. Enjoy your practice. Don't make it a grim project. Don't set yourself all sorts of unreasonable goals and, and uh, serious agendas that you need to fulfill. That's not going to make it a path of joy. That's not going to enrich your life. The Buddha said that this path is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. So can we just take delight in being wherever we are on the path? The joy, find a joy and a delight in being in the process, being in the process itself. This process of coming more fully into contact with ourselves, coming more fully into contact with others, inhabiting this world more fully with all of the the richness and all of the messiness and all of the vitality that's involved in being human, being in life and being in relationship. Sharon Salzberg tells how her teacher uh, Manindraji, the last century, uh, was asked once why he practiced this path. And his response was, so I will see the tiny purple flowers by the side of the road as I walk to town each day. He was asked another time by uh, another student and answered a little bit more seriously um, to live life fully. The purpose of this path, this practice, is to to be able to live life more fully. This is a quote from Thoreau, our local uh, sage slash poet in this area. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Let's sit for a moment. to do good, to refrain from harm, and to purify the mind. This is the teaching of all Buddhas.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.